Good to see everyone. God bless you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 2. Now, for those who are joining us online or just to get you up to speed, uh, we uh, this evening we find ourselves in the first main section of the book of Romans. Again, it covers verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3. And uh, this first section falls under the heading of condemnation or judgment because in it Paul wants to uh, prove that the whole human race apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God. He wants to do that as a prelude to giving the gospel, which is the theme of this epistle, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, after looking at verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1, well, the question Paul anticipates is readers will be asking themselves is, what about the good people, Paul? The moral people, the people who aren't murderers, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, all the sins he mentioned at the end of chapter 1. You know, the people who are basically good, decent people. Certainly they won't be judged by God. Well, Paul anticipates this, th this thinking. And so he moves from the unrighteous heathen in chapter 1 to the self-righteous hypocrite in chapter 2 to prove that the ethical moral person so-called you know primarily the jews but there were some gentiles that prided themselves on being moral that the ethical moral person is going to also find themselves in the same hell as the gentile pagan idolater that he mentions in chapter one if they don't see themselves as sinners and turn their life over to jesus christ as their savior they're under the delusion that they're good people the moralist, right? Now, actually, Paul lays out six principles of judgment in the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2. He talks about knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. And Paul builds his case against the moralist and the religionist. Sometimes they're the same person. Uh, that they are also guilty before God. He builds his indictment of them around these six uh, principles, these six indictments. Uh, first one is knowledge, which we looked at last week. Verse 1, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. As we pointed out last time, uh, the verse begins with the word therefore, which ties this section back to what uh, preceded it in chapter 1. And uh, Paul is saying that uh, he's saying that what is true of uh, those spoken of in chapter one, verses eighteen to thirty-two, is also true of you, <laughs> you, you so-called good person, moral person. You are also without excuse. Why? Because you know the truth. No, the first word. You know the truth. And how do unbelievers prove they know the truth? They prove it by judging others. In other words, if a person didn't know right from wrong, they couldn't judge anyone else for doing what's wrong. The very fact that they judge others for breaking God's standard proves they know God's standards, and therefore they're also without excuse. All right, the second point of judgment, truth, verses 2 and 3, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Truth, the judgment of God is according to truth. Well, that's not hard to figure out, obviously. Jesus said in John 17, 17, the night before his crucifixion, as he prayed to his father, he said, Father, sanctify my disciples by your truth. Your word is truth. In John 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not re receive my words has that which is has that which judges him. The word I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You don't have to turn there, but you can check on this uh, later on or tomorrow. But in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, Paul is giving us a look at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, right? And he talks about how people are going to be judged according to three books. Two are unnamed, one he does name, the book of life. Now, the other two are not named, but it's not hard to figure out. Jesus gives us one of them right here. They're going to be judged, John 12, verse 48. Uh, the word I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So one of the books will be the word of God, God's righteous standards. What is the other book? I believe Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. The other book is the ledger that where God keeps all of our sins. I mean, every thought, word, and deed contrary to his divine law, he has written down in this ledger. Paul called it the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. Here's the good news. If you receive Jesus as your Savior, he takes his blood and writes tetelestai at the bottom of your ledger. That word, it is finished from the cross, tetelestai, could also be translated paid in full. Paid in full. So we will not be judged because our debt has been paid in full. But those who refuse Christ, they will stand before God, give an account, and they will be judged according, in part, to the ledger, which is all the sins they've accumulated over the course of their life. Now, guys, listen. The same truth that sanctifies the believer will be used to judge and condemn the unbeliever someday. Psalm 96, 13. Listen. The psalmist said, For he is coming, Jesus Christ, he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Of course, God's truth, once again, is his word. God's truth will judge unbelievers based on the facts of their life, which he knows perfectly. We just talked about the ledger. Every sin we've ever committed was will be written down there unless you're a christian then they're erased by the blood of christ but what unbelievers don't realize is that god sees everything they do everything all right in fact hebrews 4 13 and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account everybody's going to stand before the lord and uh, there are many people who are such con artists that they think when they stand before God in the day of judgment, they're going to be able to, I guess, fudge the facts and fast talk their way into heaven. I don't know, maybe they're salespeople right now. There are some good salespeople. They, they can sell ice cubes to Eskimos. But you know what? They think that they're going to be able to fast talk God into heaven. They better think again. 
Some people are so good at fooling others about themselves, they think they can fool God about who they are. But in reality, guys, as we know, they're only fooling themselves. Galatians 6, verses 7, beginning at part of verse 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man, whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, hell. And again, you need to check out Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, because we see that judgment day scene, which is only for unbelievers, the great white throne judgment. That is the final judgment for all unbelievers. At that point, they are cast into the lake of fire forever. Now, for some reason, people don't seem to believe that God says what he means and means what he says. I mean, there are people that know what God has said in the Bible. I mean, some of it. They know that they shouldn't commit adultery. They know that they're forbidden from doing stealing and lying and so on. But they do it anyways. And on the day of judgment, I imagine the Lord saying to them, what part of thou shalt not didn't you understand? It's, just, it's that simple. Because everyone thinks that, well, I know what God has said, but I have special dispensation. It applies to them. I know the Bible says I shouldn't marry an unbeliever, but I believe God has led this person in my life, and he wants me to marry them because he's going to save them. Well, you don't get to make that decision. God says don't do it. You don't get special dispensation. Nobody, God never said, uh, don't do this, but Phil, I'm going to give you a pass. No, we are all bound to the same word of God, his commandments. Well, number three, so knowledge, they're going to be judged according to knowledge. Secondly, truth. Number three, by their guilt. By their guilt. Verse four, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness, and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Or in other words, that man is guilty of violating God's holy laws. Let me start out by saying this. There are two kinds of guilt. There is good guilt and bad guilt. There is legitimate guilt and illegitimate guilt. What's the difference? If you break God's commandment, God says not to do something, you, do, you, did it, you do it anyways, and you feel guilty. That's legitimate guilt. You have violated something God said you were not to do, you did it anyways, and that guilt has been, God has put it in your heart because he wants that guilt to make you feel bad, to drive you to Christ for salvation or forgiveness. Legitimate guilt is when I violate something God has said and I feel guilty. That's legitimate. That's good. It drives you to God. Illegitimate guilt is when you feel guilty for the sin or the sins of somebody else. Classic example would be a battered wife whose husband is always slapping her around, beating her, but she feels it's her fault. Well, it's not really his fault. If I was a better wife, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's his sin. 
You should never take it upon yourself the guilt for somebody else's sin. Because all you're doing is allowing him or whoever it is to shift the guilt from themselves, which is where it belongs, to you, which is where it does not belong. But today, guys, guilt has been defined by secular professionals and Christian psychologists alike as a toxic emotion that will produce neuroses that, if allowed to continue, will eventually produce physical harm like strokes and heart attacks and maybe even lead to suicide. One well-known pastor had this to say on the subject of guilt, and I'm quoting him. He said, recently I listened to a talk show on a local religious radio station. This daily program features a man who bills himself as a Christian psychologist. On the day I listened, he was talking about the importance of overcoming our sense of guilt. Self-blame, he told his audience, is usually irrational and therefore potentially very harmful. He gave a long lecture about the importance of forgiving oneself. The whole discourse was an echo of the world's wisdom. Guilt is a virtual mental defect. Don't let it ruin your self-image and so on. He never mentioned repentance or restitution as prerequisites for self-forgiveness, and he never cited a single passage of Scripture. That kind of counsel is as deadly as it is unbiblical. Guilt feelings may not always be rational, but they are nearly always a reliable signal that something is wrong somewhere, and we had better come to grips with whatever it is and make it right. Guilt functions in the spiritual realm like pain functions in the physical realm. Pain tells us there is a physical problem that must be dealt with or our body will suffer harm. Guilt is a spiritual pain in the soul that tells us something is evil and needs to be confronted and cleansed, end quote. Guys, the only way legitimate guilt can be effectively dealt with and removed is through repentance. Repentance. But before repentance can happen, there first has to be the acknowledgement of sin. The acknowledgement of sin. The guilt of violating God's holy laws his righteous standard, the guilt of sin. God won't forgive a person for sin if they don't acknowledge they've sinned. And guilt is important because it drives us to God. But what happens is a lot of people won't let guilt drive them to God. They rationalize it. They excuse it. As Paul said, they either uh, accuse somebody else, it's not my fault, it's their fault, or they excuse themselves. Either way, you're not going to come to a You might reach what the Bible calls worldly sorrow, which is regret. You know, I feel kind of lousy that I cheated you out of all that money, but I really feel bad. And I've asked God to forgive me, but you're not getting your money back. That's just worldly remorse. Godly sorrow, Paul said, leads to repentance, which means change. You do what you can to make restitution and so on. In Romans 2, guys, verses 4 to 5, Paul is saying that God's mercy and his forbearance are giving people time to repent. Time to get their lives right with God. If they do repent, he will forgive them. But if they don't repent, he will have no choice but to judge them. Guys, Paul is warning people not to abuse the long-suffering of God. Because every day that God withholds his judgment from their life, giving them a chance or time to repent, 
is another day that judgment is being accumulated for the sins they commit. God's giving them time to repent, which is good. But every day they don't repent, they're accumulating sin, which means they're accumulating judgment. Let me read to you verses 4 and 5 once again out of the NLT. Paul said, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. One author commenting on this said, and I quote, Paul is saying that God has been good to man all across the world, and his goodness forbearance and long-suffering had as its goal to lead them to repentance and salvation. But when it didn't lead them to repentance because of their hard and impenitent heart, the converse is resulting instead. They are storing up wrath in the day of God's judgment. Look, the same fire that can warm you if used properly can destroy you if used improperly or to put it another way, the same person who can save you is the same person who can judge you. As somebody has said, Jesus will be one of two things to every man and woman who has ever lived, either loving Savior or righteous judge. And what he becomes to you then, on the day of judgment, will be determined by what you do with him now. Receive him or reject him. The word translated despise in verse 4 is a Greek word that means to grossly underestimate the value of something, a failure to recognize true worth. In essence, it means to take something that is priceless and discard it, throw it away as though it were worthless. God's love, his offer of salvation, patiently waiting for a person to come to him, giving them time to repent, offering them the most priceless thing in the universe, eternal life with him in his kingdom. The word goodness means God's kindness to us in regard to our past sin, that he has been good to us because he has not judged us yet, though we deserve it. Forbearance means God's kindness to us in regard to our present sin. This very day, indeed this very hour, we have fallen short of his glory, yet he holds back his judgment against us. And long-suffering means God's kindness to us in regard to our future sin. He knows that we will sin tomorrow and the next day, yet he holds back his judgment against us. Why? Well, again, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise of coming judgment as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all be given time to come to him in repentance. Guys, the bottom line is that God is good. God is good. And he expresses his goodness in blessings upon, listen, all mankind, not just upon Christians. God expresses his blessing, his goodness, upon all mankind, what the theologians call common grace. Common grace. Turn to Matthew 5. 
Jesus talked about common grace. Don't you love it how Jesus took these theological phrases and he just made them so simple. He wasn't into big words, impressing people. He just wanted to communicate his truth to their hearts, right? And so he said in Matthew 5, starting with verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. Common grace. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. Give you one more. Psalm 33, verse 5. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now I bring this out because the sad, appalling thing about this is that many, if not most people today, really don't see God as being good. In fact, most people wonder at how God can be so evil. So evil as to allow bad things to happen to good people. Wars, famine, disease, injustice, etc. God was really so good, he would not allow these evil things to come upon good people. So he must be an evil God. What most people don't realize is that when they say, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? What they don't realize is that there are no good people for bad things to happen to. That's a misconception. As Jesus said, there is no one good but God. Matthew 19, verse 17. Paul echoed that sentiment in Romans 3. He said, none are righteous. Not one. None do anything good. No, not any. Guys, what most people fail to understand or refuse to acknowledge is that God shows his goodness and mercy to fallen sinners, listen, every single day, in that every time they sin against him, he doesn't strike them dead in the spot. Remember, the soul that sins shall surely die. And it's only his goodness, forbearance, and patience that lets them take another breath to see the light of another day. See, people are so used to God's goodness, mercy, and patience that they take them for granted. Or, even worse, they think it is their due. They think they deserve them. So that when God does finally judge sin. People see him as harsh, unjust, and unloving. And the Bible clearly teaches that the wrath of God, which is his holy judgment upon sin, abides on all who have not received Jesus Christ. But the goodness and long-suffering of God holds it back, giving them time to repent. As one author put it, most people don't believe that God will judge them. They don't believe that for a minute. And every day they load up on God's goodness, blessings, and provisions. They take in all the pleasure and joys of life, the love of a spouse, children, family, and friends. They enjoy the beauty of the creation, the good times in life. They enjoy these things every day and never give us a thought that it all comes from the hand of a gracious, loving God who is trying to use his goodness in their lives to bring them to him, end quote. 
And yet most people today don't see themselves as guilty sinners deserving of God's judgment. And the only reason he hasn't judged them yet is because he is a kind, merciful, loving God who is giving them time to repent and get their lives right with him. No. Rather, they see themselves as good people who deserve to be blessed so that when adversity comes their way, they rail against God, saying things like, well, I'm a good person. So why is God being so hard on me? This isn't fair. I deserve that he blesses me. He's a cruel, unjust God. These people are so self-focused and so convinced of their own moral superiority and goodness that they don't thank God each day for his blessings in their lives. You know why? Because they believe they have those things coming to them. It's their right to be happy and blessed. And so when things don't go the way they feel they deserve, they become angry with God. Because, listen, he has cheated them out of what belongs to them. Interesting. Guys, one of the biggest problems facing mo the modern Christian church is this very thing. The mentality that God owes us something. And that his blessings are our right. One pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, There is a sick cult that has arisen in contemporary evangelical Christianity that is built around self. People talk about self-image, self-esteem, self-worth, and self-value, but it is nothing more than humanistic worldliness. You have no worth or value as a self, as a corrupt sinner. And the whole idea of that concept has taken evangelicalism and twisted it from a God-centered perspective to a man-centered perspective. And salvation and Christianity is all seen nowadays from the viewpoint of what it can do for me. And sin is always seen as to how it affects man and not how it affects God. We are selfish, selfish, selfish but selfish. Indulging ourselves in God's mercies, this is a horrifying error. I'd like to spend the rest of our time tonight addressing this issue because it opens up, guys, one of the greatest fundamental truths in the Bible, and we really need to understand it. And I'd like to think our church is not deceived in this area like a lot of churches who actually preach this stuff. But even we who are evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christians can fall into some of this mentality because it's everywhere around us self-esteem self-worth self-actualization all this stuff is not rooted in the word of god which says you don't self-esteem esteem means to build up self-esteem build up self where in the bible do you ever read god telling us you need to work on your self-image you're too down on yourself gotta build up your self-image the teaching has come into many churches which says you can't learn to love others until you first learn to love yourself. A twisting of what Jesus said when he said love others as you love yourself. No, no, no. They twist it and go, you can't, Jesus taught you can't love others until you first learn to love yourself. That's not what he said. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 5 said nobody has to learn how to love themselves. We already love ourselves. We feed ourselves, we bathe ourselves, we take care of ourselves, we pamper ourselves. How will we do some of that to others for a change? But let me just say this. 
People see God as unjust if some tragedy comes into their life. A loved one dies, they get cancer, or some other adversity comes their way. And when it does, they say to God, that's not fair, God. How can you do this to me? And right away they see themselves as innocent victims, and God as the guilty bad guy, doing them wrong by stealing their blessing from them like God was some kind of a common criminal. I mean, think of this mentality. You would be shocked to know how many people really embrace this idea, this thinking, that God owes them. And if anything bad comes into their life, God's let me down. God hasn't been fair with me. I deserve to be blessed. How dare he steal my blessings? And so they begin to question God's love and his goodness in light of what they believe are the actions of a cruel and unjust God. Here's the problem. They have taken his goodness and blessings so for granted that they actually th see them as their due, as their right. That God owes them these things. Why? Because they are good people. When the real question we should all be asking ourselves isn't, why do bad things happen to good people since there aren't any good people? All have sinned. But the real question should be, why do so many good things happen to us seeing as we're all so bad? Or in other words, we're all fallen sinners that violate God's laws every day. Instead of acting like we're being mistreated by God when something bad comes our way, comes into our lives. And let's not forget something. This is not the world God created us to live in. This is a fallen world. And as such, it is full of evil. But mankind has chosen this for himself. Oh, I didn't. Why am I being punished for Adam's sin? All right, well, then live a righteous life now. Don't prove he was right by following in his footsteps. Well, see, I don't want to do that either. It's easy to blame Adam for the mess the world is in. But then fallen sinners could add to it, and they, you know, build into it every single day of their lives through their own rebellion. But instead of acting like we're being mistreated by God when something bad comes into our lives, we ought to be thanking him for showering us who are so undeserving with so many good and blessed things every day. But you see, as long as people have a man-centered theology that exalts themselves as good and deserving people instead of a Christ-centered theology, which just sees themselves as unworthy sinners, there will always be a low and defective view of God out there. You remember, and I want you to turn to it, you remember the woman in Luke 7 who came in, began to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, right? He's sitting in the house of a Pharisee having lunch. She comes in, she's broken, she's weeping, she's washing his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair, hair and the Pharisee thinks to himself, if this was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who touches him, for she is a sinner. So Jesus said, Simon, I got something I want to ask you. Go ahead, teacher. When I came into your house, you gave me no kiss for hello, but this woman has not ceased kissing my feet since I've been here. You gave me no water to wash my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Though her sins are many, they have been forgiven her because she loved much. For whoever is forgiven much loves much, Whoever is forgiven little loves little. And the idea that Jesus was communicating 
not that the Pharisee had so little to be forgiven of, it's that your awareness of how sinful you really are will directly impact how much you appreciate God and love him for his kindness, generosity, and forgiveness. The church used to sing songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved the What? Wretch Like Me. A lot of churches won't sing that anymore. It's too negative. It damages people's fragile self-worth. I guess the new song is Amazing, you know, um, amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved the Noble, Wonderful, Loving Person Like Me. And so what you have is you have a lot of people that have grown up in this last generation especially that have been fed a steady diet of self-esteem. You're wonderful. Everyone gets a trophy mentality. You feed people, I'm talking about church folks now, a steady diet of how wonderful they are and God is blessed to have you in his kingdom. You're not going to have a bunch of people that are broken over their sin. And they're going to love little because they don't think they were forgiven all that much. They're pretty wonderful to start with. But if you teach the Bible the way God intended it to be taught, how there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us are worthy in the eyes of God. None of us are do anything. None of us have anything coming except judgment. But because God is so loving and merciful, he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? Whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but everlasting life. If you understand... And I know you guys do. But if Christians really understood how lost and hopeless they were apart from Christ and were doomed to spend eternity in a place called hell, the lake of fire, where there's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth forever, and Jesus rescued them out of that destiny, I would dare say there'd be a few more people on their faces on Sunday thanking and praising God for being so loving and kind and forgiving. You'd be singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. And like this woman in Luke 7, we'd be broken before him. We'd be weeping and thanking him for what he had, has done for us. Guys, if people would just understand when they you know, shake their self-righteous little fist in God's face and say things like, if you were really a good God, you would not have allowed this painful thing to happen to me if when they did that they could hear the voice of God who would be saying to them, back to them, you don't understand. There are no good people. But I do a lot of good things for all people, even though they sin every day and violate my commandments. I do that. I treat them good because I am a good and loving God. People don't see it that way. And why don't they see it that way? Because the problem is that they are blinded, too blinded, by pride and self-righteousness to see themselves honestly and rightly before God. Pride blinds. And the more pride a person has, the more they are blind to their own, their true condition. But instead of asking, why do bad things happen to us sometimes, we should be asking God, why don't they happen to us more than they do? Instead of asking God, why bad things happen to us sometimes? We should be asking, why don't they happen to us more than they do? A good example is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were guilty of bringing the first sin into the church. What was it? They lied about giving something to God. I won't have you turn to it. You can read it yourself out of Acts 5, verses 1 to 11. The church is really starting to roll now. 
people are coming in droves. They're getting saved. But there was a, a famine in the area. So people were hurting, and there were some other things going on. So Christians were selling properties. They had extra fields and houses. And they were bringing the money to the apostles to kind of dole out to those in need. Voluntary. Nobody told them they had to do it. It wasn't communism. It was a voluntary thing out of love that they wanted to help others. So this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they had some land. They sold it, but they didn't give all the money to the apostles to give out to the poor. They kept some of the money for themselves, but said they had given all of it to the apostles. Peter, the Spirit of God, revealed to Peter what had happened. So Ananias was there. Sapphira, I, she was out shopping. at the, I don't know where she was, but she wasn't there. So Peter said, Ananias, did you sell your piece of property for this much money? Oh, yes, that much. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? He has revealed that you didn't give all the money to us to give to the poor. Which Peter said, look, nobody asked you to do it anyways. It was completely voluntary. We never told you it was a mandatory to sell your property and give it to us. But because you did it and lied, God is now going to judge you. And he fell down dead right there. Young guys dragged his body out and buried it. Three hours later, his wife comes walking in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said, uh, Sapphira, I want to ask you a question. Did you sell your land for such and such money? Oh, oh yes, for such and such. He said, I can't believe you both conspired together the light of the Holy Spirit. The same feet that carried your husband out is going to carry you out now. And she fell dead on the spot. And we read, although we don't have to, Fear fell on everybody. Yeah. Because God was holding them accountable for lying. Now, people read that story today. They read that story today. And they say, you know, well, that, that wasn't so bad. I mean, everyone lies. Why did God have to kill them for that? That wasn't right. It was cruel and unjust what he did to them. The problem is we have gotten so used to sin that we no longer understand that all sin is punishable by death. Let me say it again. All sin is punishable by death. Going back to the beginning, the soul that sins shall surely die. And the fact that God hasn't wiped us, wiped us all out is a testimony to his mercy and grace. My pastor used to, there, there was a song they used to sing in church in the old days, you know. And uh, one of the lines was, take my silver and my gold. They're singing to God now. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. Chuck said, if God was treating the church today like he treated it back in the first century, you'd have dead bodies all over the sanctuary. People would be dropping like flies. So when people read this story, they get indignant kind of. They're so used to sinning and getting away with it, they almost think, well, what's the big deal? The issue is not... A, not why did they have to die? The issue is, why does God let me live? Sometimes we make promises we either don't intend to keep or something else. We decide somewhere along the way it's not really, I didn't really mean that promise. Forget about that, God. Erase. <laughs> um, but, you know, the people read this story and, and, and they say, you know, why did God have to do that to them? How could a loving God, and they go on. Again, the real issue isn't why does God judge some 
for their sins and take their lives. The real issue is why doesn't God judge all of us when we sin? Why does he let the rest of us live? We're not looking at this from the right perspective. We're not looking at this from God's perspective looking down. We're looking at it from man's perspective looking up. And from our perspective, we think God is being unfair to us. Or when he does judge sin, and really everyone apart from Christ is under the judgment of God. Again, you know, the wrath of God abides on unbelievers. At any moment, he would be absolutely righteous and just to bring the hammer down and take their life off the earth. And the only reason he does it because he's patient and long-suffering and merciful and kind. And he's trying to do good things in people's lives because he wants them to know how much he loves them that hopefully they'll come to Jesus and be saved. Because he doesn't want to judge people. Those that believe God's a bloodthirsty God who just enjoys bringing the hammer down and judging people and throwing them into hell, you're not reading your Bible right. I don't know who you're listening to, but you're not getting that from the Word of God because God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and kind. And that goes back to the Old Testament when Moses wanted to, to you know, know God's name, wanted to see the face of God. And God says, Moses, you can't look at my face, you'd be incinerated. My glory would, would incinerate you on the spot. But I'll tell you what I'll do. You hide yourself in the cleft of that rock, and I will put my hand over you, and I will pass by. I'll remove my hand enough for you to see my afterglow. But that's all I can do. And so God walked past Moses, and as he did, he, pronoun he pronounced the name of the Lord. And I think it's Exodus 34, 5, 6, somewhere around there. But, but the gist of it was, God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, showing mercy to thousands, and so on. That's who he is. Lamentations 3.22 The unfailing love of the Lord never ends. By his mercies, we have been kept from complete destruction. Guys, people are not seeing things properly, and therefore they're prone to say, I'm good, God is bad. Wow. Wow. You know, we're coming up to the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. America's tragedy, national tragedy. And when that event happened, and I remember where I was when I first heard what was going on. I, I know exactly where I was that day when I got the call, something is happening. And I knew immediately it was terrorism. But when after that whole thing happened, you heard a lot of people say things like, how could a good God have allowed this to happen to us? What kind of God, a God is he? Completely oblivious to themselves and putting all the blame on God. I see it the other way around. I think it was a testimony of God's, to God's mercy that our enemies were only able to kill 2,500 of our people. They originally wanted to use 10 planes to hit 10 targets. It could have been 10 times as many. I mean, given the filth and corruption of this nation, it's a wonder that God doesn't wipe us all out right now. I mean, God has promised in his word to protect and bless any nation that honors and obeys him. If God's hand of protection is being removed from America, it isn't an indictment against his goodness, it's an indictment against our wickedness. We need to understand that. Listen, along the highway of human history, God has placed warning signs of danger ahead, danger of coming judgment. These warning signs consist of tragedies, often. 
that he allows to wake us up or to get our attention, when we as a people are no longer listening to uh, him speak from the pages of his word, we've become dull of hearing. So he's got to shout. Again, C.S. Lewis, God whispers in our pleasure, shouts in our pain. I believe 9-11 was one of those warning signs and wake-up calls. Listen to me carefully. I shudder to think what the next one will be like if we don't repent as a nation and get right with him immediately. It's been 22 years. We could be very close to another event where God says, you're not paying attention. And I've got to ramp up now the warning. I've got to allow something to happen to shake you as a nation to your core. Not because I want to destroy you, I want to save you. But I can't save you until you first acknowledge your sin, repent, come to me, and I will ask for forgiveness, and I will forgive you. Look, Israel didn't listen to Jesus when he warned them about coming judgment. You can read about this in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, and Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. They didn't listen to him. And 38 years later, from his crucifixion, that judgment came. And these words of Jesus ring just as true today as when he first spoke them back then. Luke 13, verse 5, I tell you, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Look, getting your life right with God right now is the most important thing anyone can do. If you're not saved, receive Christ. If you're backslidden, get on your knees and confess your sins. And guys, I don't know, as we bring this to an end, I don't know if there's any hope for our nation. I pray there is. I'd like to think there is. Nineveh was 40 days from judgment, and they repented, and God spared them. I'll tell you this, the farther we move away from God, the more we move out from under the umbrella of of his protection. And the only hope for America is that we as a people, and I'm talking about the church first, repent. We all know 2 Chronicles 7, 14, of my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sins and heal their land. If my people, starts with the house of God. Again, just in closing, in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul is saying that God's mercy and forbearance are giving people time to repent and get their lives right with God. Okay, if they repent, he will forgive them. If they don't repent, he will have no choice but to judge them. Uh, There's a teaching going around, I'll just mention it, because we've been brought up with this mentality. We talked about bad things happening to good people. Well, there are no good people. There are bad things to happen to. We're all sinners. But there's a teaching out there that says good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Now, that was the mentality of Job's friends, right? Job, don't tell us you're a righteous guy. Don't tell us you're innocent. God doesn't punish good people. You must be a bad guy. But let me say this to you. I've seen too many wicked people, prosperous and healthy, and too many wonderful, godly people, sick and poor, to ever believe in a theology like that. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12, Although a wicked person... Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will 
go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. The wicked, their day is coming. Read Psalm 73 at your leisure. There is a day of judgment coming. The wicked may li be living high off the hog right now. They might be enjoying life. That won't go on forever. Now look it. I don't know who, what's going on in your heart right now or who's watching online. But let me just say this. If you're sitting there fuming at what I've been saying, let me say to you as kindly but as firmly as I know how. If you are furious with this teaching, it's because you've allowed the devil to brainwash you into thinking that you're a good person who deserves to be happy, who deserves to be blessed. And if you're not being blessed, if you're not happy, it's God's fault because you deserve it. That's a brainwashing of the devil. Instead of seeing yourself as God sees you, a sinner who deserves nothing, but God is offering a gift of salvation too, if you come to Jesus and receive him by faith, right? As Jesus promised, unless you repent, you will perish. That's a promise. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Lake of fire. Forever. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is all about not how God gets good people to heaven, how God gets guilty people to heaven. And that's through his forgiveness by receiving his son as payment for their sins. All right, we'll pick this up next week, God willing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in Jesus' name, and we thank you for your word and what you say to us that keeps us on the right path. Because, Lord, the flesh is very powerful and wants to pull us in a wrong direction, making us think that we're good and you're bad. The very opposite of what the truth is. You are good. We are sinners. The good news is you love sinners and have sent your son to die for sinners that we might become good people through Christ and live with you in your kingdom forever. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.